Good morning. Good to be with you guys here this Sunday. Uh, think with me, if you can, to a time in your life where you received a underwhelming gift. Uh, probably There's probably times you can think of when you're like, what is this thing? It's even better when you are the gift giver of that underwhelming gift. Uh, this happened to me, I think, our second year of marriage. Christine and I, we were on a really tight budget. Uh, I was working on my master's degree, working at New Balance part-time. Uh, working at the church that we were plant, helping plant for free. Christina was working at the church as well, a barista. So money was tight. And it was either Christmas or her birthday. They're really close together. So I can't remember which one. And, you know, the money's tight. And so, you know, why buy one nice thing when you can buy multiple small things, right? Because who doesn't like to open more presents? And so I went to Hobby Lobby because everything's like half off there all the time. And I got her three things. I can't remember one of the things, but I remember the other two things was a, what I have affectionately now referred to as the vegetable medley. It was like this glass vase that was like kind of like a circular thing. You know, these things where they put vegetables in them and it's like decoration that you put on your you know, kitchen counter or whatever. And I was like, we could use decorations. This looks awesome. There's lots of colors. So I got her that. And then I also got her this red candle that said love on it. And so that was, oh, thank you. Okay, exactly. <laughs> And so got her that, and uh, she opened it, and I could tell she was underwhelmed very quickly. And so eventually I got it out of her what the problem was. I noticed that she put the candle upstairs in our bedroom, and I was like, you like candles? I thought you'd put it in the living room. And she was like, Dylan, it's red, and it says love. That's kind of weird to put in your living room for everybody to see, so we're not going to do that. And she's like, this vegetable medley thing, I ain't putting it up in our kitchen. It's ugly. Right? And so I gave her a very underwhelming gift. Now, again, my, at least my heart was in the right place, but it wasn't something she actually wanted. And today, as we continue our series, What Would Jesus Undo?, we are going to look at this idea of hollow worship, where we do things for God, but yet what, what, the reality of this situation is what we're doing might not actually be what God wants from us. And so, again, we're in this series. Many of you might be familiar with the WWJD bracelets. Uh, in this series, we're looking at the things that break the heart of God, that if Jesus was around today, what are some of the things that he might challenge us, those of us that are followers of him, what are some ways that he might challenge us in? And hollow worship might be one of those things. And so to give you an example of what this looks like, uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, if you have a Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one around you in the seat in front of you. You can read along there or on your phone. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is being confronted with some Pharisees, which are some religious leaders. And here's what happens starting in verse 1. It says, the Pharisees and some scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. So they gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they, when, uh, when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. And so what's happening here, the problem here is not about physical hygiene, it's about ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, so Jews, particularly devout Jews, of course, they believe everything was either clean or unclean. And so what you would do, or what you would try to do, is you would try to avoid touching things or doing things that made you unclean. Because if you were unclean, uh, you'd have to avoid being around people until you went through a series of things to make you clean again. Uh, you were restricted in going to the temple and the certain things that you could do. And so you would try to 
stay clean. And so there are various ways you could be unclean, certain animals, uh, certain ways to prepare food, um, being around like a dead body, for example, if someone in your family passed away. There's various things that you could do that would make you unclean. Now, being unclean wasn't sinful, uh, but again, it restricted some things that you would do, and uncleanliness was kind of contagious. Uh, and so like if, if a mouse touched a cup, and then you touch the cup, the cup would be unclean, you would be unclean. If then you went and shook someone's hand, they would be unclean. It's kind of like the cooties. Remember the cooties in elementary school? And you had to get your cootie shot, you know, circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I got my cootie shot, that whole thing to try to stop what was happening there. Uh, and so again, if you were unclean, you would go through a series of steps to be clean again. And so what the uh, religious leaders are uh, witnessing with Jesus and his followers is they are not going through this traditional ceremony of how to be clean, of washing their hands before they ate. Now, before they ate, now there are various ways that you could do this. It seems that one of the popular ways around Jesus' time is that you would take your hands before you would eat a meal, and you would take about a, what is it called? It was a, a quarter of a log. You would take a quarter of a log, which is about an eggshell and a half of water. And you would take your hands like this, and someone would, would pour the water over your hands, and you would wash, and then you would put your hands down like this. They would pour the rest of the water over your hand, and you would wash again. Now, you had to keep your hands straight, because what would happen is your hands were unclean. As soon as the water touches your hands, the water is unclean. And so if you did something like this, or you allowed the water to run down your arm or to touch your foot, well, then that part of your body would be unclean. And so you had to do a very specific way of washing in order to stay ceremonially clean. Now, the religious leaders observe that Jesus and his disciples are not doing this kind of ritual that they had developed, and so they want to know what was going on, right? Want to see what's going on here. So verse 5, it says this. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, Right? They're clearly upset with what's going on here. They're saying Jesus, who's this somehow this religious leader guy, is doing things that are not acceptable. Clearly, this is a problem. And so this is why the scribes and, again, the, some of the religious leaders came to Jerusalem to see what was going on. Now, uh, they're convicting Jesus of breaking the Mosaic Old Testament law. Right? They're saying, you're not doing what you're actually supposed to be doing. The reality is the disciples were not actually breaking any laws at all. They weren't breaking any laws. What they were doing was they weren't doing some of the later Jewish interpretations or additions to the laws uh, that they, again, the traditions of the elders at the time had created. Now, uh, what had happened throughout the history of Israel and for many of the Jewish people is they had added laws onto the original laws, often with good intention, so that they wouldn't break them. So, for example, uh, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, do not work on the Sabbath. Well, there's not very many laws, hardly any at all, really, about in the Old Testament or in the Mosaic law about what that actually means. And so what would happen is uh, throughout the centuries, throughout the years, the, the religious leaders would come and they would try to say, well, here is what work is and here is what you cannot do, often with good intentions. But again, doing what the religious leaders or the tradition said you couldn't do isn't actually breaking the law. And so some of this ritual hygiene or sorry, this ritual ceremonial washing was not actually described in the law that you have to do it this way. These were just later additions added to try to make sure that you stayed ceremonially clean. And so what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to show that these laws that you add in, often with good intentions, are not actually binding. And your problem is not with people actually breaking the law. Your problem is actually something else. And so here's what he says in verse 6. He, being Jesus, answered them. He's going to quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. He said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. How would it feel if Jesus said something like that to you or to me? They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. And then, verse 8, at the same time, abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human traditions. So he calls them hypocrites. He calls these religious leaders who are trying to trap him and his disciples hypocrites for two reasons. One is that their actions are externally motivated, and they're not from the heart. He's going to give them an example in just a second, but their problem is not that some of these people are not doing what the the Jewish law or customs commanded. Their problem is wanting to shame people for not living up to a standard that they think people should live up to. It's not that they actually cared about people. They just wanted to talk about how great they were. And so their actions about following the law were externally motivated, like checking off a list. Their hearts were not actually pursuing the Lord. And their other problem is that their teachings were from man, but not God. In other words, they're elevating some of these human, again, sometimes with great intentions, these human additions to the law, more important than actually the law that God gave them themselves. Again, so they added extra laws to avoid breaking the laws, which is fine, but then they became to, uh, began to obsess over these extra laws. And here's the thing. Uh, you and I can do this today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we can do the same thing. You and I can be um, accidental Pharisees, if you will. Here's how this happens. Maybe certain things happen to you in your childhood or certain things that you've experienced in your past, and so you follow Jesus, and you have maybe uh, certain guardrails or boundaries or convictions in your life that you follow to help you follow Jesus that aren't biblical but they're very good and wise for you. And then you can judge people for not doing what you do, thinking they don't love Jesus as much as you do because they don't follow these extra things that you've created. Even those extra things, even though they could be wise and they could be good for you, right? So maybe uh, alcohol is a thing. Maybe you grew up uh, in an alcoholic environment or maybe you've struggled with it and so you refrain. Uh, And of course, the Bible talks about not being drunk at all. But if someone has a glass of wine, you could say, well, they don't love Jesus much because they wouldn't do that. Or maybe there's certain foods that you refrain from or like for me, for example, uh, I'm really good. I'm really big on like budgeting and stewarding your finance as well, which again is a wise thing. But if I'm not careful, I can judge people who don't have a budget as if having a budget determines whether or not you love Jesus, right? There are certain things, all of us in our life, good convictions that the spirit might have led you to live by that aren't biblical, but are good for you and that you and I can judge people for not doing them, right? That's kind of what is happening here. And so Jesus is going to give them an example of how they are elevating human tradition over what God is actually asking them to do. And he says this in verse 9. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, and this is the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother... Whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin. That is an offering devoted to God. So instead of taking care of their aging parents, they're giving it to the temple and to various religious things. You know, he says this, verse 12, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. So what's happening here again, Jesus is referring to the fifth commandment. So all of the laws, all of the 613 laws were important, obviously, to the Israelites. But the first 10, the 10 commandments were like the big ones, right? If you're going to break any of them, don't break those. And so what's happening here is that they would have the commandment of honoring your father and mother. And so one of the ways that you did that is that as you, as you got older and as your parents aged, I mean, there's no retirement communities, there's no savings account, unless you're like super wealthy, like you're kind of 
stuck to whatever your kids do for you. So one of the ways you honor them is to take care of them in their advanced age and as they have health problems that come their way. What's happening here is that Corbin is basically this concept of, of, of vowing to give certain resources to the temple or to the various religious institutions of the day, which is good. But what would happen is as these parents would age, instead of certain people caring for their parents because they said they were going to give to the temple, the religious leaders not only encouraged, not only welcomed this practice, but encouraged it. And in some cases, they would actually speak down to people who said, you know what, I actually need to start taking care of my parents. I need to start giving less, if you will, because they're aging and they have all these problems. And what Jesus is doing here, he's saying that you guys are not only allowing this to happen, you're encouraging it. You're allowing this tradition of, made by man of giving extra to the temple to supersede what I've actually told you to do, which is take care of your parents. Right? He's showing them that they are actually being hypocritical. That yes, it's an important thing to say, hey, I'm vowing to give to the temple. That's a great thing. But if something more important happens, like, oh, I don't know, the fifth commandment, it becomes more important. They can't do that. And they would be shamed for taking care of their parents, right? And to the, trans, to the Pharisees, this was a big problem. Again, Jesus showing them that you're focusing on the less important thing, that you don't actually care about people. You just want to check a box and shame people for not doing what you want them to do. You're focusing on things that are important. The temple is important, all that sort of thing. But it is not the most important thing, which in this case is honoring your father and mother. It reminds me of the story of Sherlock Holmes, the uh, well-known you know, English uh, detective who cracks all these cases. And he has his uh, sidekick, Dr. Dr. Watson, right, who's really smart and brilliant. And it reminds me of the story of, of when they decide to go camping. And after they have dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night and go to sleep. Uh, they're out in the woods. They're camping. A couple of hours later, uh, Sherlock Holmes wakes up and he nudges his friend, Dr. Watson, and he tells him to look up, look up at the sky and tell him what he sees. And so Dr. Watson replies to Sherlock Holmes by saying, I see a million, I see millions of stars, Right. And so Holmes looks at him and he says, okay, what does that tell you, Watson? The fact that you can see these stars, what does that tell you? So Dr. Watson thinks for a few minutes and then responds with some really big words that I had to write down to see if I can actually say them correctly. Let's see if I do. He says, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it says, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that there is a, that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Uh, theologically, I can see that God is all powerful and that you and I are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I don't even say it. Meteorologically, I don't even know how to say pronounce it because there's lots of O's, but you know, whatever. I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? And so after a few minutes, Holmes is silent, then spoke up and said to Watson, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> right? It's great that you see all of these things, but the most important thing, our tent is gone. Right? You're not actually seeing what actually matters here. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out to these religious leaders. It's great that you want to do these things, but what is the most important thing? You're missing it. And so he says this in verse 14, the last part we'll read. Verse 14, it says this. So summoning the crowd again, he told them, talk, Jesus here, he told them, listen to me, all of, you under, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can, defi outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he gives various examples. His point here is that your problem and my problem is not external. It's not out there. It's in here. 
right? Humans have a heart problem, a motivation problem, and it's much, much more deeper and a much more serious than just being ceremonially pure. And so what we see here, what Jesus is getting at in Mark chapter 7 is this, that Jesus is after our hearts, Jesus, at the end of the day, is after our hearts. You see, it's easy for you and I to check off a box of hand-washing in their case and of following God and say, look, I did the things, but I'm kind of living my own way as long as I can check the box and say I've done whatever I'm supposed to do and I've refrained from whatever I'm not supposed to do. Jesus said, I'm not about that. I'm actually about your heart. Right? And so for us, we can have various examples of that in our day. Right? We can come to church and then live the rest of the week like Jesus doesn't really matter, like he's in a side-on or he's an addition that we need help. We reach out to him. Uh, we can pretend our marriage is great to other people even though it's struggling and we're not getting the help we need and we're not being honest with people who love us and care for us. Uh, we can uh, never be vulnerable about our weaknesses with people around us and then judge others who do things in public that we do in private. Right? We do all of these things. Check a box. And our heart is not actually following Jesus. And so again, today we're looking at this question. What would Jesus undo? Hollow worship. He would undo hollow worship. This idea that we're following God or we're doing some of the things, but our hearts are not actually attuned to him. It's not about perfection. It's not about never sinning or never following short, but it's actually saying, do I actually love Jesus? Or do I just want to check a box and try to get from Jesus what I can actually get from him? Because here's, here's what we see happening here. Well, as we look at this idea of hollow worship and we read Mark chapter 7, here's why one of the things that we, we need to understand as we read it, and that's this, that our hearts, not our external actions, determine the rightness of our worship. It's our hearts, not just our actions that we can kind of pretend, even though our motivations are not in the right place. Not to say how we live doesn't matter, because it certainly does, but it needs to be motivated out of a place of love and appreciation for what Christ has done. Now, worship is not just singing. Uh, there's a lot of ways in our, uh, ways that our life can be a worship to God, but I'll talk about singing for, for a second, just to kind of give us an example of what this means, right? It's not a music style, but a heart condition. Right, and so let's just say, for example, uh, Father's Day is coming up here next month, right? And so let's say my kids come in early Father's Day morning. They would not do this, but let's just say they did. And they said, Father, we have written you a song to sing about how much we love you on Father's Day. And so they come in, uh, and they're and they're and you know they come in, they start singing me a song, and they're kind of like a cappella, and they're holding their hands and like they're singing to me, and I say, Oh, stop, 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 stop. The father, your father, the songs that he would like you to sing are more like a praise band, okay? Uh, so Rowan, put on some skinny jeans, put some more gel in your hair, get this toy drum set, pull it up, Finley, grab a microphone, grab a piano, uh, get, some, get a fog machine, get some disco lights, right? And then when you're there, then you can actually, right? Or at the same time, let's say they come in and they're just like screaming and they're like, happy Father's Day, and they're singing all these things. I said, kids? The, the, the songs that your father uh, prefers is liturgical and meditative and quiet, right? And so, right, I wouldn't do that. I would just be appreciative of their heart towards me and what they are doing. And so what this means for us is this, that worship that pleases God isn't about a method, but the motivation. It's not about necessarily how you go about doing it, but why you're doing it the way that you're doing it that ultimately matters. See, here's the thing. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, here's what we know, right? Following Jesus isn't a hobby. Um, it's not an interest. It's not like a side hustle, right? If we follow Jesus, it's because he is our life, that he is the king of the universe, came and gave his life for us so that you and I could experience the grace and mercy of God. And there are many various ways 
that we can worship and we can honor him. But what matters is why we're actually doing it. To impress other people, to check a box, or because we want to experience the grace and we're thankful for what he has done for us. And so here's what this means for us. That worship isn't just the songs that we sing, but the life that we live. Worship is not just singing, but it's how we live and and how we conduct ourselves Monday through Saturday as we go about our days. It is not just the songs that we sing, but the life that we live. Because the reality is that singing is one expression of worship, right? But how we live is another expression. Again, not as a kind of, um, I don't know, like a hypocritical, you better do this, you better perform, but in a response to the grace and mercy of what God has done for us and who he is, it changes how we live. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to invite the, the band to come up, and we're going to sing in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want to prepare our hearts to reflect and to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. See, we talk about the gospel a lot, and it's like this phrase that we use, but we can forget. Uh, those of us that have been followers of Jesus for a while, we can forget just utter insanity of the fact that the king of the universe actually came in the form of a man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to, so you and I could experience the grace and mercy of God. And so as you walk in here today with various trials and issues, and maybe for some of you life is good, you are reminded that what you're going through isn't God trying to get back at you. He's not trying to hold something over your head, but because he loves you and he cares for you, if you're suffering, it's not because he didn't care. Because if he didn't care, he didn't come. And if life is going well, you can experience the blessings and the thankfulness of who God is and how he has provided for you. Listen, I know all of us come in here with various baggage, various things that have happened to us. And the gospel is the good news that you don't have to act a certain way to experience God's love. Why the gospel is if you are in Jesus, if you have received the grace and mercy of God, what we say often around here is that you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Because Jesus proved all of it on the cross. And if God loves you and cares for you, ain't no one you need to impress. Again, this is not like an excuse to like be a jerk, obviously, but it's the reason to honor God and love people above everyone else, that we don't have to manipulate people, that we don't have to have revenge on people because God is in charge of all of it. The gospel is that today, no matter what you did last night, last week, or even this morning, that he loves you where you are that you don't have to go through a ritual of hand washing to experience his grace. Uh, you don't have to go through like a month of not doing the thing that you keep struggling with before God will listen to your prayers or even care for you. That Jesus himself has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel in response of that is that how we live is changed. It is not just the songs that we sing, but the life that we live. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you something we did a few months ago in the book of Exodus, but I think it's worth repeating. Some of the various ways that we can respond to God and the grace that he has given to us. Uh, Sometimes we bow in reverence. Uh, Sometimes, you know, you're so, if you read throughout scripture when God appears or his presence appears and people don't know what to do and they're just like on their feet because they're like, God, don't kill me, first of all, because I don't know what this happening here. Like, I am so undeserving of what you've done. Sometimes we bow in reverence. In Psalm 95, it says, come, let us bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Right, out of all and gratitude for all that he has done for you, not because of you, but in spite of you, because he loves you. Sometimes we bow in reverence. 
Sometimes we lift up our hands in adoration, right? And you do this all the time. Your team scores a winning basket or whatever, and you don't know what to do. So you're like, you're freaking out, or your little kid like hits a home run. I don't know, right? You just don't know what to do, so you put your hands up. Sometimes you're like, maybe I'm new to this church thing. Like, why do people do that? Like, what, what is, what's going on here? Am I supposed to do that, right? Like, it doesn't, you can do whatever you want, but we bow, we lift up our hands. Sometimes in adoration in Psalm 63, 4, it says, So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. Because of what you have done for me. Uh, sometimes, I know this is a little dangerous in here, sometimes we dance in celebration, right? Now, we got a lot of white people, so it's like, I don't know about that. But you can dance offbeat. Ain't no one going to judge. I mean, I might judge you, but he won't judge you. Right? Psalm 149, verse 3 says, Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourines and lyre. Sometimes the crazy tambourine lady knows what she's doing, right? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we, we worship with a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Some of you are walking through hell right now. And you, and it's not fair, and you don't know why. And so sometimes we worship with our questions and our doubts, saying, God, I don't feel this. God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to trust your promises, and I'm going to trust that you're good, and that you see this, and that you care, and even though I have no idea why this is happening, and why you're not stopping it, I'm going to trust that your plan is greater than mine, and that your glory and your good will come from it. So some of us in here this morning, we're going to worship with a sacrifice. Our sacrifice is just showing up and being here, and saying, God, I don't know, I have doubts and questions, but I need you. Ultimately, here's what we see. That daily we lay down our lives as an act of worship. Romans 12.1 says this, and Romans 11 is all about the grace and mercy of God, how he's brought us to himself. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, not in the view of you being an awesome person and God deciding to love you, but in view of God's mercy and grace towards you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So in the job that I love or that I hate... I honor you when I'm healthy and when I'm sick. I honor you when my finances are good and when they are bad. I honor and I trust in you when life is going well, when life is difficult. I honor and I trust in you. Ultimately, here's what we see. That worship isn't something we do. It is who we are and response to what Christ has done for us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read to you some of the names of Jesus that we read throughout Scripture to encourage us, no matter what you've walked in here with this morning, as we get ready to worship, to remember who God is, what he has done, and why we worship. Throughout Scripture, we see that Jesus is a number of things. We see that he is our rock, that he is our redeemer, that he is our righteousness, that he is our deliverer, and our defense. Jesus is these things, not you trying really hard. We see that Jesus is our shield and our salvation. He is our strength. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the good shepherd. He is the true vine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We see throughout Scripture that He is the light of the world. He is the Lamb of God who died on our behalf and the Lion of Judah who is fighting at the right hand of God for us. We see throughout Scripture that God is ever-present, that He is all good, that He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, that He is the King of kings, that He is the Lord of lords. And so we offer our lives as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In the midst of our sin and our shame, we repent, we confess, and God says, come to me because I love you. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to stand. 
And as we, re- as we sing, I want to read over to you a couple of verses in First Chronicles to remind us of who our God is and how we can turn to him no matter what life might be going uh, your way this morning. Here's what it says. It's on the screen. It says, Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and joy fill his dwelling. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. To all, tell all the nations this, that the Lord reigns. Let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the fields and their crops burst out with joy. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love towards you endures forever. And so praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people shouted, and all the people shouted, and praise the Lord.